Welcome back to the Access to Education podcast, where we talk about all things having to do with learning disabilities and learning challenges. Having children or a child who is neurodiverse can be scary. It can feel lonely, and sometimes as parents, we question everything we do, from how we parent to how we support them through their school and life. I don't know about you, but when we were first going down this journey, I wondered how they would manage. And that's coming from a person with a learning disability. I knew they could do anything, but I wonder how I'd be able to support them enough. How I could be there for them like they needed me to. I don't have ADHD. I don't understand its workings personally. Over time, I've grown to understand it and support my kids, but it was a tough road in the beginning. Today on the show, I'm talking to Chris Brady. She's an international speaker, consultant, and learning strategist. She works with college and military programs to help support people of all ages with ADHD, sensory difficulties, autism, and anxiety. Over the past 15 years, Chris has worked to support inclusive strategies within school and workplaces. She uses the acronym LYV, Love Your View, empowering employees and students to love their view and see the possibilities. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation because ADHD is something I'm still wrapping my head around and I'm trying to think how many years we've been in it for, but it's like a continual growth. It's like continual learning and understanding, but I also don't feel like it stays the same ever. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Absolutely. And and as we go through life with ADHD, you know, we do develop different strategies that either help us to cope with our learning differences or the environment in which we're learning, or, you know, we get really good at covering up certain things that can later come out. And and so, yeah, it can kind of look like it's changing shape for sure. It's like parenting, right? Every time you think you've figured it out, something else changes. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. I mean, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do in supporting divergent thinkers and, and employees and, and students. So I'm a neurodiversity consultant, which basically means that I get to go into uh, schools and workplaces and with parents as well and just better educate them on the accurate descriptions of what these learning differences actually look like. And I think a big, big part of it for me was when I when I first got into this, this kind of field of inclusive education, there were so many parents, um, especially, but the students themselves who really didn't understand, you know, why they were struggling with certain, you know, learning differences, but also with certain emotions, with certain behaviors, and they just needed more information. And I really didn't understand where all of the stereotypes were, were coming from. I had teachers who were who just weren't trained properly, and management definitely isn't trained properly. And, and so because there is this lack of training, the stereotypes really have persisted. And I really just saw an opportunity. At first, it was just me going around to, you know, different libraries, trying to educate mostly parents and teachers and just give them more accurate descriptions of what this looks like in a classroom setting or at home, you know, at homework time. And then it became more of a thing because people were like, hey, we need we need more information. And so I've been lucky enough to to do that in four different countries now. And I, I, I just, I love it. It's been, it's been really great. 
Okay, so the country thing. Hang on, I want to. I want to stick to that for just a second. I know it wasn't in our plan to talk about. Yeah, sure. But now that you're saying it, mm-hmm. I know how we view ADHD here within Canada, and I know you're in the states, and and I would imagine between Canada and the U.S., we sort of view it the same way in terms of it's a neurological difference and like there are things we can do to help and support. Mm-hmm. But is that the same in all countries? Do they all view it the same? Like if you've seen it in other countries, I'd be curious to hear if there's a difference to how it's viewed, the stigma, the all of that stuff around it. So what's been different about working in the different countries is, so I was in Australia and England and then Canada and the U.S., and I've worked at different levels. And so, you know, I worked as a, an autism specialist is what that was my title in England. It's not so much that they that we view ADHD or any other learning difference that differently. We still have the same stereotypes around where the difficulties actually lie. I think the difference actually comes in how these differences are supported and no one country is doing, you know, an incredible job, but there are there are differences that are notable in certain countries that I shouldn't say the entire country in, you know, for the school board that I was working for at the time, there were differences in how teachers were trained and how they were maybe had a little more control over how to change up their environment and their curriculum so that they could meet the needs of the student. And so those are the types of things that we're really working towards in, you know, everywhere. But that's, I wouldn't say that, that we see these, these differences as, um, you know, they're all pretty stereotyped in, in anywhere I've been. Hmm. Interesting. I just wondered if it, right, because sometimes things differ from country to country. So that's an interesting perspective to have, I think. I know, I mean, I did my teacher training in Australia, and it's not fair to say that, like, I gained a lot from the 10 months that I was there and the two placements that I had. But you certainly see what is similar to what we do up here in Canada. But then you also see a little bit of what's different. So it's always interesting to have those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in, in Australia, they really have that that system at the end of high school, not even, you know, pretty much in grade 10, they start kind of figuring out, okay, if you're more of a hands-on learner, then this is kind of the avenue that we're going to take you. And, and if not, then this is the avenue we're going to take you. So things are, things are streamlined a lot earlier there, um, which can be good and can be not so good if you've gotten yourself into the wrong, you know, into the wrong stream, um, so it just it just really depends. So if we look at ADHD, because let's stick to the one the one topic we could talk about. So many different things in neurodiversity. There's so many little pockets of things that we could talk about, but we'll stick to ADHD. What's the biggest struggle you find that young adults have when they enter the workforce in terms of understanding their capabilities, but also that students have in understanding their needs and their differences and how they go about advocating for those? Yeah, I think the biggest barrier is the fact that many teens and adults really don't understand their strengths and they don't understand that the challenges they've had for so long, much of it stems from the ADHD. And, you know, unfortunately, our education systems really do focus on the challenges and and the differences and the policy that needs to be created if you are, you know, going to 
receive any type of accommodation. And so all of this focus, it really creates a barrier to figuring out what your strengths are when you're so focused on your challenges, because if they're focusing on your challenges, then you're going to learn too as well. And so by the time they get to, you know, college, which is usually where I get to get to work with them now is, you know, the self-esteem has been so kicked down for so long that they really just have this kind of this inner narrative that someone else has given them. And it speaks to only their challenges. It speaks to what they can't do. And, and they believe it because they've believed it for so long. And they've been told by authoritative figures to believe this, right? And we do that as children, we, we believe authority. And so I think the self-esteem that comes from those struggles and from those misunderstood behaviors, that's the absolute biggest barrier. And then once we can figure out, you know, once we have the conversation of I'm so sorry that, that you were lied to basically for so long and, you know, these are your strengths and this is where we're going to focus. And these are how you're, how you're, you know, this is how your strengths are going to compensate for some of those struggles that you've had. And it's, it's just this kind of self-realization that you can reshape that narrative. You can change that into, into what you believe that you can actually do now. Because, you know, many of them were taught that they couldn't even go to college. So even just being there is, is massive. Yeah. And I mean, listen, it's not an ADHD angle for myself, but definitely for my own learning disability. Mm -hmm. I was told, I remember sitting in an IPRC meeting at the end of grade eight, and I had a psychologist, and I've told this story a million times on the podcast, but here I am telling it again. But I, I think it's, it speaks to that narrative, right, of that I had psychologists, teachers, social workers, whoever was around the table. I don't remember now who was around the table, but they all said to me, don't go to this high school because you won't get help. And by the way, you should just go to college and learn a trade because you'll never make it through university. I had it within myself to understand that that wasn't the narrative that was true for me. But I think it's hard when you're told that for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's the people that have told you, it's not, you know, it's not just so-and-so who used to tease you anyway, you know, the classmate that was the bully or whatever. It's, you know, it's a teacher, it's a parent, it's a family member, it's a family friend. Like these are, these aren't just authoritative figures. These, these people mattered in your life. And so you listen to that, you know, and you, and you think they're not, they're not going to lie to me or they're professionals. They know what they're talking about. So that must be true. So if we talk about the narrative and we talk about, I mean, we can talk about all sorts of people who need to kind of be able to step up and change the narrative. Mm -hmm. How do we as parents, because I think we could talk about all the peripheral people who are around that child. But I think at the end of the day, for me anyway, as a parent and as an individual, my parents have kind of always been central to me and who I am and reassuring me that I'm doing what I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. So how do we as parents help support our kids to change that narrative, right? Because I think sometimes you need one person to help pivot it. And sometimes you find that great teacher, but I think I'm, I'm thinking of parents who might be listening tonight. What is a way that parents can hear the struggle that their child is having, but then be able to bring them out of that to change the narrative for them. I think just so first up, 
understanding that there is narrative and then that goes for the parents themselves. So when we are helping our kids with their homework or even just getting ready for that homework time, there's a certain narrative that's going through our own minds like, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be really difficult again. It's always really difficult. And the words that we use when even internally this really lays the ground for everything that's going to happen that evening because we get ourselves into a certain type of emotion, whether it's, you know, I'm frustrated that I have to continuously do this, or I'm feeling really impatient right now. I don't have the patience to to go through this again, or I'm really struggling with this because I don't understand why he doesn't understand this. And, and I think it's really acknowledging What's going through your own mind? Really taking note of everything that goes through your head when they're about to have difficulties. Because you are too. And that's okay. But the point of having those difficulties is to see where they stem from. What are the comforts that I currently have that I kind of am feeling discomfort now? What's taking me out of that comfort zone and why? And how can I reshape my comfort zone around homework or around, you know, my kid not getting straight A's or whatever it is, there's an expectation that isn't being met. And we have to figure out why that that expectation was absolutely so important to you. I think the second thing is understanding how much emotion goes into learning. For for so many kids who who struggle in school, you know, the reason that they're not doing their homework or they're not, you know, excelling in school isn't because they want to do poorly. It's because for everyone, our experiences justify what we're about to move forward with. And so if we've only experienced hardship and difficulty and struggle and failure whenever we've tried our hardest at learning or in a test mode or at homework, then what's going to make us want to continue trying? And so what we have to do then is say, okay, that's true. And up until this point, you know, my son or daughter has had massive difficulties in this area and there's been so much emotion around it and they just refuse to do it now. Okay. So what else can we try to figure out a way to change this because what we've been doing is obviously not working. And, and so there's much we can do to support our kids, to support, you know, our workplace people in in our workplaces. But I think the key is really understanding how much of that we actually control. So we, we absolutely control the environment in which they're doing their homework. We control the attitude that we're bringing into that situation, the emotion we're bringing into that situation If homework time isn't a good time, choose a different time. If you're super stressed in the evening and, you know, that's why you're getting really frustrated when your kid won't go to sleep or we all have those moments. Realize absolutely that is normal. Absolutely. It's okay to be frustrated, but to then figure out where is that frustration coming from? What can I do to turn this around? Because I'm not going to change the neurology of my child. That's not going to happen. I think that's a hard thing for parents to, I know it was hard for me initially to wrap my head around the idea of like, I can't change their brain makeup. (laughs) They are who they are. You know, they're born that way. It isn't something 
And I guess, I mean, as I'm saying it now, it's connecting for me, but it's also for me, it was releasing the guilt, right? Being able to say, I didn't do this to them. It wasn't my fault. This is who they are. And that for me helped kind of release a little bit of the, I don't know, the responsibility. I still find I co-regulate for my kids a lot. Yeah. Like a lot. I co-regulate for them. <laughs> I think that's a, a good point to bring up. There, There's a lot of guilting and there's a lot of shaming. And one of the key things that, you know, I that I would look into if, if you are a parent who's feeling guilt is where does that guilt stem from? Why am I feeling guilt that my child has ADHD? Why, why is that so important that he not have ADHD? And so the reason why blame and shame comes into play there is that, again, we have been taught by a very archaic system and stereotype that having ADHD means that you're not going to excel, that you are going to struggle with this, this, and this, that you are probably not going to go to college, that you're going to have to do a trade, that you are going to not be able to make friends. There are all of these things that come with a focus on the negative, with a focus on the challenges, with inaccurate information, because we already know that People with ADHD absolutely can focus. And that's where our focus as parents tends to go because that's what we've been taught to do with any learning difference. And so when we do that, we really kind of just feed into this, this idea, this theory that because we are different, we are broken. And there should be guilt in giving your child a broken brain. I think too, it's societally a little bit when you're different, we don't quite know what to do with you and where to put you. And especially in education and in some, some work environments, I can imagine everybody has to fit into a spot. There's a round peg and you all need to fit into that round peg to make the cog turn that makes the thing do the thing. Mm-hmm. But I just heard somebody, I, it was a, a TikTok reference of all things. It was an older teacher saying, you know, it's 19th century teachers being taught to a model that like doesn't work. So when we look at ADHD kids or kids who have a neurological difference, sitting in a desk in rows, listening to the teacher, you know, it's like the peanut cartoon doesn't always work really well. And no, you're not going to get success necessarily out of that child or that person because it's not what gets them going. We're all diverse. We're all different. We need a little bit of something different to get us going. So yeah, I think leaning into that is important. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if we look at, at classrooms, even 10 years ago, we are starting to see more of that. It's not, you know, it's definitely not where it needs to be. That's, you know, without question, but is that wheel slowly turning? Yes. You know, the neurodiversity movement is happening. This isn't something that's that's going to revolutionize everything immediately. But I mean, even the term neurodiversity, it was only coined in the late 80s. Like this is all quite new. And it's already 
you know, we already have neurodiversity programs in major companies like Google, Microsoft, SAP. We have the the college that that I'm working at has, you know, an autism transition program. We have an ADHD program for um, apprenticeship. There are so many accessibility services now. We have entire accessibility departments. Like these things weren't available in any way. And so those things are happening. We're starting to learn that what you do for one child to change the system is actually going to help millions more. And it's cool to watch the transition happen for sure. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. In the areas where it's working, it's working well. I mean, there's always room for improvement and some, it's like anything, some places are way ahead and some places just haven't quite gotten there yet. So it's, it's been really interesting to see it kind of grow and change. I wanted to talk for a minute because we sort of touched on it and then we kind of went off a little bit, but um, there was a great quote on your website that I saw that I think I sat with for about five minutes because it it really resonated with me. And it's, your child can't be understood unless they can first understand. And that, I like, I sat with that and I was like, ah, oh, okay, I, I get it. And I I can see that, you know, I do it a bit with my kids in terms of I sit them down and we read through their IEP as an example of like what I help them understand. Like here's what's in there in your individual education plan to the, the, the teachers have sort of decided in a way that these are the things that you need to be successful. When we had the psychoed done for my eldest the second time around, cause he was 11 at the time. And I was like, okay, you're old enough to now kind of understand some of the information. And I sat down with him and I took him through parts of it, not the whole thing. Cause it's overwhelming, but there were sections that I felt that were important for him to understand. Mm-hmm. So how do we as parents kind of, and we talked about this again, right? A little bit earlier, but how do we really get into it with parents? Where do we start? Do we start with the IEP? Do we start with the assessments or do we just kind of start saying you're an amazing person and and this is who you are? So I think opening up the conversations around if your child has been diagnosed as having an ADHD brain, it is absolutely imperative for them to understand what that means. They cannot advocate for themselves unless they understand where their strengths lie. And I'm going to be really honest. When I have a student who's, I mean, I I would say even 16 and over, I would say more than 90% of the students that I've seen at that age or adults have no idea about their ADHD brain, have never read their psych ed assessment, did not know what accommodations were on their IEPs that have followed them for decades there's almost this kind of fear around, well, you know, what if I, what if I tell them and it, and it hurts their feelings? Or what if I tell them and they use it as an excuse to not do their homework? That's where we have to say, okay, so this is the myth and these are the facts. ADHD is not a reason to not do your homework. And we know that. And so we can educate our children in, in saying, okay, yes, you struggle in math. Is it all of math that you struggle in? Nope. It's most likely one component of math or even, you know, two or three, but there are very specific points of each subject where they struggle. And this is really key to understanding. Many parents will say to me, oh, my kid, my my kid's no good at math or my kid's no good at reading. 
these are these are statements that um, really make me think that you haven't actually sat down with your kid and figured out exactly where they're struggling, because what happens is most you know most kids who who are really struggling in math and have some difficulties in reading have trouble with word problems in math. That is their greatest struggle. So that's an area of focus. So instead of telling our kids, yeah, you're just not good at math. You're just like your mom. We, we're, just, we're just not good at math. Again, that, that only adds to a narrative that is inaccurate. So figure out exactly what it is that they're not good at, at math. Um, and, and why? Oh, okay. You're struggling with the word problems. You're not understanding um, what they're asking of you. Right. So let's figure out some strategies for chunking this information and finding out exactly what it is that, that they're asking you to do before you move on to the next question, because this is really you know where you're struggling or you're struggling with reading. Mm, it's not all reading because I can see that you're, you're reading. I hear you reading the words. Um, you read very well, but I think you're having some difficulty remembering what you're reading. So what's something we can do to help you remember what you just read so that you don't have to waste your time constantly rereading things, right? And so this is what I mean. A lot of, a lot of students, yes, they really they need to understand how their brain works. They need to understand where their strengths lie. But they also need to get rid of these kind of broad statements of I'm not good at this or I'm or I'm just not good at school or I'm just that's not truth and we really need to emphasize to parents to make sure you're separating those comments from the actual truth I love that idea of separating the comments from the actual truth and it forces us as parents to get to know our kids yeah Um, it forces us as educators to have to get to know the students in our room and sometimes that's hard Absolutely. You've got 30 yeah. kids in a room. You can't, I mean, it is, it's hard now. So we've talked a little bit or quite a bit really about kids at school. I, I want to talk a little bit about the workplace because this is some, I'm, I'm a long way from getting my kids into the workplace. Maybe not that far because I've got one who's 11. So at some point he's going to say, Hey, I'd like to get a job or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's going to bring with it its own set of challenges in terms of adjustment and routine and learning and dealing with and struggling with. And again, the narrative of I'm not good at math or I'm not good at reading or any of those things can kind of creep back in. So how can workplaces adjust their quote unquote ways to support diverse learners in the workspace? What is there something that they can be doing? Is there something they should be doing or are they already doing it? I only know my one work environment, so I can't. Yeah. So there's a ton same as in schools, there's just so much that we can be doing differently to better support all learners, but especially our, our neurodivergent learners. So a couple of things. First and foremost is neurodiversity training. It is as key to management as it is to educators. If you do not understand the diversity of the people that you are managing, you cannot manage them properly. It will not work. There are different people who will require different motivations. There are, you know, motivators. There are people who will require, you know, different learning environments and sensory differences. And there's so much that we can learn from an accommodation request. If someone comes to us and says, okay, 
you know, I'm having difficulties with sensory overwhelm and with the lighting or whatever, whatever it is. If you look at the statistics around sensory processing disorder, if you look, then look at the stats with ADHD and sensory processing disorder, if you then look at the stats with autism and sensory processing disorder or anxiety and sensory processing, these are, there are millions of people who are better served, are better able to access their decision-making skills, their time management skills, all of those executive functions, if their time isn't spent being overwhelmed by sensory information. So these are things that we can incorporate into classrooms, into workplaces, without requiring people to come forward with some type of formal documentation. That is another thing that I could talk for days about this, but like there's such a massive emphasis for the need to have policy in place. Every little step of policy must be in place. The the person, if any difference to the environment needs to happen, if any change needs to happen on our end, then you need to come forward. You need to self-identify with a disability. You need to give me the formal documentation. You need to jump through the hoops. And I may, at that point, change something small on my end. And what we're what we're doing when we communicate that is basically don't bother. Don't bother. There's a lot of hoops to jump through for that. Is this one little accommodation really worth it? And so this deters a lot of people who actually do have a formal diagnosis, who actually could get the accommodation done, but it deters them, right? Because they say, well, what else is going to happen? Could I get fired? Could I get treated differently? Absolutely, right? And so we're deterring those people from coming forward. But we're also deterring another massive um, demographic of people who do not have a formal diagnosis, who do not have any type of documentation, but who also struggle in all of these same areas. And they will continue to struggle because, again, we refuse to change the system, even though we've seen the research, we've seen how these changes can actually help every one of our employees, but we will not implement them unless we are forced to do so. And this is where we have some difficulties emphasizing policy so much. There's so much more that we can go through as far as actual accommodations, but making some of these changes, you know, managers, the same as parents, the same as educators, you need to figure out why neurodiversity training is so key. Why is it that massive companies like Google and Microsoft are taking on neurodiversity programs? Do you think that that they're just doing it for try it out? No, they've done the research. They've figured out why this is so key, why this is going to work and how this is going to work. And now they want to open it up because, I mean, currently those those neurodiversity programs are specific to autistic employees or candidates. But that's the whole point of this is to open that up, to broaden it so that we can see how we're going to implement the same program into our entire workplace. These are progressive companies. There should be, you know, other companies should be looking to them saying, if they're doing this, I need to figure out how to do this. And I think what it can lead into is I'm listening to you talk about it. I'm like, you know, 
just putting in some of those accommodations, because let's be honest, as adults, there we're discovering, or I'm certainly meeting all kinds of adults who are like, oh yeah, I just got this thing and I didn't know that I had ADHD or I didn't know I had a sensory issue. You know, for years I thought I just was weird. They're coming up with these things, but amazing how cool it would be to to see companies make teeny tiny changes that actually can affect a greater group of people who don't know that they're struggling with that. I was even thinking something like the the lighting in a building can affect because sometimes the lights can make a noise or they can do strange things. Mm -hmm. Just making one tiny little change can influence or support all kinds of people without intentionally doing it. But it it yeah. just it's a tiny thing that could mean a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And and at low to no cost. So for young people who are listening um who have a neurodiversity of any sort, what's a piece of advice you would give to them as they enter the workforce? What I would hope for anyone who is neurodivergent and trying to navigate the the system of interviews and applications and just trying to even get your foot in the door can be really discouraging. And, and oftentimes the interviews are the, the, the process is just so archaic that we have a lot of questions that don't really matter and that don't, they don't really show the, the skills that you've developed and, and what you can actually do for that company. And I would hope that up until this point, they have had some practice in learning how to advocate for themselves, whether it's to parents or to family members or to teachers. That's my biggest hope. If if you have not yet learned how to advocate for yourself, um, that probably means that you don't know all of the strengths that lie within you and all of the talent that lies within you. And... I would, I would really focus there first and just really getting to know these are some of my challenges. And, you know, I can, I can list them out. We all have some challenges that we can list out. Absolutely. But here on the other side are my strengths. And I'm going to come up with ways that my strengths can compensate for these challenges because there are, there are far too many the unemployment rate for neurodivergent teens and adults is deplorable. I think for autistic employees, I'm pretty sure college grads are 84. There's an 84% unemployment rate for autistic college graduates, whereas the normal employment rate is, I think, 4%. So, you know, when we're looking at, at things like this and we're saying, man, we're missing out so much as a society, we are missing out on their talent, we are missing out on their perspective, on how they would problem solve, on all of these developed skills that neurotypicals just absolutely can't develop. And, and I want people to, to own those differences and to really see them as, as strengths. And so that's, that can be really hard, obviously, when you've been taught that these aren't strengths, that these are just purely weaknesses. But, you know, there are different websites that you can go to for, for more information. Obviously, there, there are a couple of books um, that I've read about employment and neurodiversity. But I, 
I think that's what really needs to happen first is to just figure out where your strengths lie and that you actually have strengths and that those strengths will easily compensate for your challenges. You just have to really map it out. Yeah, no. And I think that's, that's a good point in terms of figuring out what your strengths are and, and figuring out what your strengths can also help lead you in the right direction of what is the right vocation for you? What is it that you should really be going to? Because if it's not something that is going to make you feel successful and, and want to be a part of, then it, you know, it ultimately is harder. Absolutely. I think people with ADHD, we're great at thinking on the spot. We're great at, you know, presenting. We're great at sales. We're great at as realtors. We're great, you know, as teachers because we present so well. So there's, there's so many different avenues to take. It's not, you know, tons of people in the trades or military experience or, and, and, I think I think that's that's part of the problem too like you had said before you kind of get pigeonholed into well you're going to go this way. And I think just knowing that no you don't have to and the cubicle lifestyle is definitely not going to be for you. So, you know what? Maybe it's time for you to start your own business. Maybe it's time, you know, how many entrepreneurs I've met with ADHD? My goodness. <laughs> like so many. Yeah, there's a lot out there. You just you simply have to research ADHD entrepreneur and there's like a ton of them that come up. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, great point for sure. We were just talking, you were just mentioning websites and books. So are there any websites that you would really strongly direct people to or books that you think either parents or employees or employers should be looking at? Yeah, so I would say for parents, if they, you know, attitude is probably the best one so far that I've come across. And I think particularly because they have their own podcast with different professionals who come on different, you know, psychologists and and doctors with ADHD, who just give a lot of really relevant and current research and information. I think that's a really great place to start and not even just start. There's there's just so much on there already because they've been doing it for so long. So that's probably the number one that I would that I would recommend. Attitude also the the great thing about them is they've often got like workshops or different things that parents can get involved with. That's true. And as everything has pivoted so much in the last 12 months, a lot of it is virtual. So you can be anywhere and access it. So yeah, it's a great resource. I send a lot of clients to Attitude. It just it has you're right. It's got a wealth of information. Chris, where can people learn more about you and what you do? Yeah, so you can, my website is at chrisbrady.com. So that's C-R-I-S-B-R-A-D-Y.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse, and I'm at Chris Brady for all of those. I have a, a Facebook group for parents, many of which are neurodivergent themselves, and they're trying to figure out what's what's the best way to support their children. And a lot of it is is narrative work for us first and figuring out some of the things that we struggled with that maybe we didn't understand growing up and, and then how to really stop that cycle of blame and shame for our kids. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Chris. This was a really great conversation. And I love that we managed to dig into some different sides of ADHD. So thanks so much for the conversation. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are looking for help and support in creating a roadmap to success for your child through challenging times, contact me at accesstoeducation.com. I work with all families to help them build power and knowledge in understanding their child's needs and how to build success through advocacy. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Access to Education Toronto. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so together we can create your roadmap to success.